You are listening to the Techie Leadership Show with Bogdan and Andrei. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Techie Leadership Show. Today with us we have Dirk Obarkuen. He has 20 years experience in scaling regulated financial services such as banks, electronic money institutions and recently in open banking. A strategic leader bridging the gap between business values and product execution. Dirk has led regulated banking and electronic money projects with oversight from the FCA, MFSA, CBN, FDIC, and GFSC. Boy, I'm sure curious to find out what all those acronyms mean. (laughs) Some of the companies he has worked with are Unilever, KPMG, The English Heritage, BitPesa, London Block Exchange, IDT, Founders Bank Project, and Open Bank, where he is the CEO of. Hello, Dirk, and welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Hello, and thank you very much for inviting me. Um, so those acronyms for, they're just regulators. There's no way of trying to make that sexy in any way whatsoever. It's uh, its just a various the regulators. government. And government, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Although they're all they are all uh, great people um, within those respective departments. But yeah, nice to be here. Yeah, same here. Do you want to add anything else about yourself? No, I think you've covered it. Um, I just wish it was a little bit more exciting, uh, you know. But yeah, my background is mostly uh, in banking, financial services as a CTO. Um, first and foremost, I stepped into the CEO role fairly recently for the first time. Um, so that, that's, that's a, a nice challenge. But yet over the last 20 odd years, it's, it's been uh, primar- primarily trying to challenge banks and challenge financial services in, in a tech way. Yeah, it's challenging working with money all the time because if everything works correctly, nobody says like, congratulations, it's so awesome, your system works so great. But if you're off for one penny, you're going to find out really fast about it. Yeah, depending on which side, depending on which side you're off by a penny, because if you're off (laughs) in your own detriment, you will not find out. Well, let me let me uh, maybe start off with something interesting about that. Actually, if our ledger was in the favor as a positive mismatch, the individual would probably be fired faster than it being in a negative mismatch because a positive mismatch means that we've probably been doing something a little bit untoward along the way to make it not balance. Whereas negative, okay. usually, think of a store with a cash machine, right? So you've got the till or okay. a register. I'm not sure what the terminology is. And if you're handing out change to somebody for a transaction and they give you, I don't know, 20 euros and you give them the wrong change back and it was too much, then that till is going to be down. Whereas if you've got too much, then something's going on. There's some miscounting going on there. So it's actually a first indicator of financial crime. So uh, you've already hit on something there that's uh, pretty evident about secret within our industry is that... uh, the way in which we have to build our ledger is, is the first and foremost thing to get right first. You know, actually, funny story about that. This is the second time in 30 years I heard this. You put it way better because you have experience in, 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 in financial institutions. But I, used, I remember being five years old in my mother's office. She was looking, doing the books and she said that uh, something's wrong. Uh, we have plus value. And I, being a kid, I said, plus is good. You know, <laughs> it's plus. And she said, yeah. no. And I remember this quote, plus is minus. Yes. And it and it, it racked my brain for years. I just 
Couldn't still rack my friends. Yeah, <laughs> but it makes sense. It has to be double zero. It has to be zero zero on both ends. Otherwise, it's always missing. It's either missing on your side, your customer side, your business side, the government. It's not good for business. No, no, Definitely it's not. not. And you know, the art of double accounting, bookkeeping methodology is is boring, but it's what keeps us all sane and um, allows us to know exactly where our balance really is in real time. I hope you weren't fired by your mother, though. That would be that would be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Well, kind of hard for her. It was her business. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, people yeah. that are, especially the people that are working now in banking technology, they're unsung heroes in my uh, respect because. People that have it tougher than them would be like people that are working on medical devices where a person's life really is in their hands, basically. Yeah. And yeah. with one error, massive uh, loss of life can happen. And banking is right next to it because people really care about their money. Yeah, oh yeah. And I, <laughs> I know two companies that, that really li like uh, people in financing, especially in accounting. Uh, the first is, I forgot the name of the studio, that starred Ben Affleck as the accountant. Talk about a cool accountant. Oh, yeah. I know the movie you're talking about. The name escapes me. Yeah. Sorry, but I do know the one you yeah, made. No, it's it's called The Accountant. That's the oh, name the of the, the movie. Yeah. yeah. They wanted to be to drive straight, no mystery there. <laughs> you, you know what you're getting. And the second company that really loves uh, accounting and accountants is um, Harley Davidson. Especially oh, in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. I inherited a project a few years ago. Um, I'm probably better off not naming which one out of the list that you gave because the story I'm about to tell might not be uh, fantastic. The team that we inherited on that particular project, my development team, we we had just met that day, and they had a philosophy of trying to release daily, which is great. I'm I'm a big advocate for that. I like uh, committing to production daily if you can do. But in this instance, it broke um, part of the ledger. And what they were doing was converting um, currencies from one currency to another. And there was a decimal place um, issue. So some people were doing oh. very, very well if you were buying currencies of only two decimal places versus currencies with more. Um, and all I can say is that um, it was a, a big eye-opener from a day one on the job, or maybe it was week one on the job when I think about it, not to exaggerate. But it was certainly some people's first day on the job, um, on the team yes. um, that day. And I remember looking at um, the dashboards that I was still trying to get familiar with myself um, of uh, losses um, on the, the misadjustment when it came to our uh, trading account. And a uh, very long story short, we were losing thousands of dollars a minute that we didn't put a hot fix out but i do remember released in production <laughs> this is in production so here's another thing that was uh, quite a lesson on that day so putting the losses to the side for a moment there was a, a real dilemma that was presented uh, one half of my team was saying well we can get a hot fix out to this but we have to push it untested straight to prod and then the other half of my oh team my was God. saying well that's ludicrous you've got to write a test first but it's going to take us a couple of hours so what do you do Right. Um, exactly. What do you do? Yeah. What do you do? So what I did actually was chose the uh, the option to to take the hit on on the cost of, of the loss. You know, I I always put best practice before financial value. But it was a it was a real lesson on that day, not only for me but equally for the whole team. And it was actually a bit of a blessing in disguise because what that exercise cost us financially built a core 
uh, team that where we all share the same values uh, and that was best, best practice first. Well, that's a fast team building exercise oh, yeah. to do. Costly, but fast and effective, it seems. And really fast to determine who the leaders and go-getters in the team are, the people who get stuff done and the people who know how to to self-manage and also um, collaborate with others because it's never a one-man show. Agreed. And it turned out the fix that we put out worked, um, but it was the, the test that we wrote first that identified a problem that would have happened that would have been far more expensive if we had gone straight to prod. So it was the right decision. But hindsight is a wonderful thing, right? So, um, uh, you know, great team, by the way. Everybody on that team is still still performing um, on that particular project daily, and, and, and they're awesome. Awesome. That's why I love tests. Oh. Tests are really good. <laughs> yeah. If you want at, to build good software, at least reliable software helps on tests. You need to highly recommend it. Yeah. And you're not the first company that had that problem because a company that was trading um, currencies online had servers. They, uh, they did a change that where they wanted to bet against the market and they updated nine servers and the 10th they forgot to update it. So uh, they were betting against each other, lost $400,000 in one day. Well, we didn't lose anywhere near as much as that, but I can see how that could easily happen. Oh, that's painful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, it is. Well, since we're getting into stories, I'm really curious about your stories. So starting from the top, what is the biggest leadership success story you witnessed personally? Oh, God. Of... All of the questions, this is the one that I struggle with most because the market changes and my position changes all of the time that I'm just constantly blown away with some of the good stuff that I see all of the time. But I think a big turning point for me, um, going back very early in my career, um, it was the importance of just, and it sounds really cliche, but just hiring the right team. Like there were just so many people that I've been mentored by over the years where their philosophy used to be, or still is, in fact, for those that are still within the industry, um, put so much time into me, uh, which I was very grateful for, but they always had um, the remit in their mind, whether they shared it with me or not, that at some point they were going to cannibalize themselves and move on to the next thing. So their goal was really to try and get their teams molded in a way where they could do so safely and do so admirably, really, without it being a stress or without getting fired first. Because, you know, for those, those of you listeners will know that if you're at the CTO level, or even the lead developer level, you tend to have what a cadence of about what, two, three years maximum. And then you, you, tell, you know, your life and your shelf life kind of moves on. Um, so the biggest success story for me really in, in, in all of those years, which I do feel like a very old man, I must admit at this stage, but for all the things I've seen, it's just getting the hiring of the team correct first and foremost. And, and um, pretty rapidly, in the early days, it was almost like one of my demands of joining a new project, regardless of their funding state or their size or, or any of those kind of um, vanity metrics. Um, as long as they had a budget for not just numbers of team, but equally experienced and, and also um, you know, product people, just as important to have there as, as, as developers a lot of the time. Some projects kind of exclude them a little bit, um, but I've always been a big bull for that. So, um, so yeah. The short answer to your question is uh, just make sure that you can get the best team around you as soon as possible. And I've seen that in every project I've been in, and I've always been really impressed by that. Well, you are lucky. And I like you how you put it, like <clears throat> having leaders that basically cannibalize themselves. Mm -hmm. And 
So they become obsolete in the position because they build such a great team and there's leadership waiting inside the team to take their, to take their spots so they can actually themselves are free to move because that's one secret to be able to go to the next position is to be really good in this position, become obsolete so you can leave and stay with a pristine track record, basically. Not so much as become obsolete as automate your job, you know, and add uh, the necessary redundancies and the key areas and make sure that other people can, like, if free people can replace you and can do so on a budget and fast, that's a perfect condition. Uh. Let's not get into the bosses that don't want to leave and hang yeah. on the reins of power like it's their <laughs> life there. Job for life. And I, my career started the opposite to most people. And that was in the big corporate kind of public companies. Um, and I don't get me wrong, I had a great time there. I really did. And I learned a lot very quickly. And I was actually really lucky because when I, when I joined Unilever, for example, I was 18. Um, and within oh, oh. a year or two, uh, I won't tell you how old I am now, by the way, but at the time it was 18. Um, and within a year or two, um, very rapid progression. So they were kind of forward thinking and, and trying to take this huge ship and make it agile. And they were really kind of, you know, um, uh, they, they, they had, uh, they had the, the future in mind uh, very quickly. Um, but I say that because when I moved to startup land, um, I found that now... What I got frustrated about with the big public companies, I had a new frustration in small startups, but it was more a lack of resource. You know, like that's the biggest shock you get going from unlimited budget. But it, it often means way too much time and, and too much bureaucracy. And you sacrifice all of that and you go into an agile state of startup land. And all of a sudden you, you've got to make a lot of things happen with no money, no team, get your hands dirty. So I, I love that. I, I genuinely enjoy um, the startup kind of methodology and, and, and the pros and cons that come with it. But the people in that I left behind in the corporate world were very much jobs for life. You know, they were, they, they probably joined at 18 as well and they've stayed there until they're 40 or 50. And I think that's great, you know, for some people and, and, and some companies really do need some solid captains at the, at the table for that. Um, but you know, the old Steve Jobs kind of, Pepsi Cola quote where it's like, you know, do you want to stay making sugar water or come with me and change the world? That's how I felt when I met my first startup CEO. And, and, um, you know, I just fell in love with the, with the whole risk element of, of what startup was. So, you know, pros and cons. Did you get the same offer? <laughs> to change the world. <laughs> Every CEO wants you to go off and change the world. And if they don't convince you, then you, and, you know, you're never going to join them. Right. So I love, um, all of the leaders that I've been led by over the years have had that one thing in common, um, socially narcissistic, but in a positive way, <laughs> if you can be, um, completely self-believing, but they have the ability to really sell the project to you. Um, and if they don't, how in the world can you hope that they're going to raise the relevant money to keep it alive in the first place? Um, so yeah, uh, they didn't quite use those words to answer your question, but it was the same result for sure. And I've, <laughs> I've been, I've been to many now. I think, um, I'm on project, well, I'm on start, startup 14 or something in, in, in as many years. 14? So I think so. So yeah, now so I'm really now. curious, like what are like the difference in leadership that you see between being in the corporate world and the big companies and being in a startup environment? Are Should there I... differences or is, or leadership is leadership? 
no, I think I think there are differences. Um, I think the first thing is a sense of entitlement when you've got a job for life. You feel that you can take your time. You're very risk adverse and typically you can delegate well. Your teams are larger. Your resources are better. Um, um, and and, the, and I'm kind of presenting this as if that's a negative place to be, and it really isn't. I mean, that is for people, a lot of people, in fact. Um, but if you are, you know, risk hungry and you do want to move the ball forward and you absolutely have a, a mindset at least that you just want to execute everything that you think about, then there's only one way you can do that in my mind and that is startup land. Um, so there is a difference in leadership because in startup land, you've got to do a hell of a lot more yourself um, and you should want to, by the way. Um, and there's no sense of entitlement and it should be flat management. You know, I really don't like tiers of hierarchy. Um, strip all of that away um, have people on a level playing field uh, and just hope that what you are as a facilitator um, now in my career, I feel more of a facilitator to my teams than I do um, an educator, right? So I, I believe that they already know of why that's why they're there because I only hire awesome people, like we all do, right? But um, yes. <laughs> how do I, un yes, exactly. So, but how do I unblock them? How do I, you know, how do I facilitate their next move? Um, so use me, um, you know, as much as I'm using you. And, and I much prefer that because if that was a blue chip or a, or a public company, you just wouldn't have that freedom. You wouldn't have that same relationship either. You would feel very much uh, worried to bring something to the table or try and get it over the line. Um, and you can be bogged down in the same project for years. And the idea of that frightens me. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it's kind of like the difference between two uh, mechanical engineers one of them went on to work with a big automaker and design a new model in eight, nine years. And the other one um, joined the garage and made a cool custom one-off. It's like uh, one is more hands-on and the other is more, more um, theoretical, more, uh, more bureaucracy. So I, I, I agree. I wish I, could, I wish I could pronounce um, this gentleman's name. But I'm going to have a stab. I think it's Franz um, Holthausen. He's the chief designer at Tesla, and he came from Mazda. I, by the way, I just had to Google that. I didn't know that in my head. That would be very impressive, right? Um, but he <laughs> he joined Mazda, this very well-known, um, you know, safe place to be to join. That's that's your Pepsi Cola story right there. And what's he done? You know, he's gone on to build some of the uh, the coolest cars in the world. Um, and that's how I felt when I was leaving big ship kind of public company into the risk of, oh my God, am I going to be able to pay the rent next month? Uh, and I just got excited by it. You know, everybody's different. I'll gamble to say that you probably weren't married when you made the change. <laughs> no children. Yeah, I wouldn't take that back because you'd be absolutely right. Um, no children. Um, I had an option at the time at that age to go abroad for a while. Um or to, 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 um, to go into the area of, of tech. Um, so one was the army and one was technology. Um, and, I, and I chose tech um, because I kind of, you know what, when I think about it, the reason why I did that, I think more than likely was because A, I was too unfit. I probably wouldn't have qualified in the army. That, that's the truth. Um, <laughs> I've always not been able to run very far. Um, but also, I've just been a bit of an island, really, uh, as an individual. I like to be creative and then try and execute ideas. And I really kind of have problems with um, authority when it comes to that. And you, that's just not the right environment for me. 
but respect to those that do have that. Yeah. yeah. And 14 startups. That's a lot. That's amazing. And, yeah. And startups also come with a high risk of failure. So with that in mind, what is the biggest leadership failure you had the unfortunate experience of witnessing? Well, first of all, that was a great segue into uh, the failure question. I have to say, very impressive. Uh, <laughs> thank, um, you, thank you. We struggle here. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you guys are professionals for sure. Um, biggest failure, it's lies um, for sure. It's, it's um, you know, I, I, I'm quite passionate about this, but where people um, are not humble enough to be able to accept the things that they can't do and it can come to the detriment of the overall success or failure of a project. And I've seen this many times um, over the years. And sometimes I haven't always been in the leadership position myself to kind of see this. Um, so seeing it, you know, in a, in a junior role uh, as, as, as you do, but you just feel that you don't have the right relationship to be able to call BS out on, on you know, where you see it. Um, so yeah, lies for sure is, is the number one thing. And, and just the inability to say, I don't know, don't know how to do that. But what I love about the engineering mindset is when you don't know something is let's try and work that out and let's do that in a smart way and in, in an efficient way and deliver it kind of uh, correctly rather than um, trying to be um, just bashing out code all the time, regardless of, 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 well, it comes back to our analogy about testing, right? It's the same thing. Um, so I see far too much uh, dishonesty, I think, when it comes to, the, the, from a leadership perspective I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the teams. And I just wish there was less of that. Um, and I try to encourage that myself. To go, so, is it, would you say like, it's it's all like dishonesty from the leadership standpoint, or is it over, over optimism or a blend of the two? That's a very good question. Um, I suppose there's no right or wrong to that question. It's gonna be person specific. In, in my examples, it could be a blend of the two, but either way, the result is the same. And you yes. know, ultimately, it means you're playing with the livelihoods of other folk on your team. Oh, and, yeah. You know, if, if, you, if you were in a tank with me and I'd said to you that I was a gunner for 20 years and I'd never touched a gun before, and all of a sudden, <laughs> right? I mean, it wouldn't take long before you throw me out, right? So, um, <laughs> get up there and shoot something. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. <laughs> So, you know, all right, it's not, it's not the same result in that instance. But well, well it, that, that's not optimism. That, that's flat out lying. Talk about the Wally Coyote situation. <laughs> so I'm not, you know, I'm definitely not describing people that have optimism and they're learning as they go, because in a way that's problem solving. You know, that to me is the same thing. I, I love that. Um, but I have unfortunately seen in this industry today, it's, it's nowhere near as bad as it used to be 20 years ago. Cause you've got to remember really? 20 years ago, it, it was the millennium. Um, people were making hundreds of dollars an hour just by upgrading pre Pentium processors just to get past the millennium bug. And, you know, it was just a, a crazy monopoly of, of wealth back there. So you had people that were car salesmen, literally car salesmen, uh, switching jobs to be it support in quotes. Um, you know, um, because, you know, and, and call themselves experts. Unfortunately, some of those folks stayed in the industry a little bit too long. Um, and then when you were legitimately trying to solve problems for people, um, you know, you end up with, with, uh, some bad characters, but that's not the case today. I mean, people are so much smarter today. Even the CEOs that are non-technical that I've worked for in the past, they, you know, we can't 
forget how how much they rely upon their CTO specifically from a tech perspective and their CPO if they have the luxury of, of having one um, to steer them. You know, they haven't got the capability a lot of the time to to challenge the thinking or the reasoning of tech and product people. Um, so, you know, that's why I just always like to see the right person in the right role who really genuinely is there for the good of the project. Um, so hopefully that's not too long of an answer, but um, you know, I, it does frustrate no, me more than anything else. No, it's, it's perfect. And I think I know, I know why the situation changed nowadays. The learning curve has gotten so, so steep that it takes you at least one year to be able to fake it, to make it. So point. and this 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 kind of um, um, sifts out all the people that aren't willing to put in the the work because one year of work just to be able to know what you're gonna do, not have actual experience, just be able to talk about it. That's a lot of work to fake it. Yeah, agreed. And and it shows in your team as well. You know, you'll always find some people will put a massive barrier between themselves and their team and. I often wonder, are you doing that because you're maybe hiding behind something or is it because you're just, you know, more of an introvert? Either way, it's fine. But, you know, one of the things to add on to this is like where um, some people in authority or where they'll have um, some leadership decision making to do and they'll, they'll do it in a stubborn way. Um, like uh, they're making decisions uh, because it's what they feel comfortable with at the time as opposed to, um, you know, trying to solve a real problem on a specific project that's going to be innovative and, and, and move something forward. And uh, cause it's those ingredients that make a startup into a unicorn. Um, and, yeah. and, oh, if yeah. you, and if you've got, you know, the wrong horsemen for want of a better analogy um, that are, you know, they're just kind of rolling out the same old stack over and over again, because they're, they're not upskilling as they go. They're, but, but they're disguising that in arrogance. Then, um, Ultimately, that project is, is, unless there's something, you know, crazy lucky going to happen, it, it will never be a unicorn, in my opinion. It's kind of hard to, to hope for luck. In, in my opinion, it's always something that you um, may hope for, but don't look forward for. So yeah. if it comes, it comes. If it, if it doesn't, it doesn't. But speaking yeah. about those special ingredients necessary for, uh, for a startup to jumpstart into a unicorn, what is your leadership philosophy? Ooh, it's very different today than it was 20 years ago. Um, that's good. That's really good. It means you're evolving. Yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, I try to be humble without being weak. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I can be as passionate and as aggressive as the next guy. But um, I ultimately... Um, you know, stand by that old cliche of just surrounding myself with far better people. I don't have the luxury anymore after all this time to be on the code base anywhere near as I used to be. So therefore, if you're relying on me to check your pull request and, you know, you, you've got a shocker uh, waiting for you, because that's not going to happen because I wouldn't trust myself. So, you know, you've got to be humble in where you are at the right stage of, um, of your career with that. Um, but I, I think the number one philosophy that I stand by probably is, is that passion of, of uh, vision and, and uh, stepping into, the, into that kind of CEO role now, I'm, I'm absolutely fully appreciating those that have led me in the past, how different that job is to what I've been used to. Um, and it's all about the vision and 
when I say sales, I mean selling that vision to your whole team every day, all the time. And and being so on the being on the one hand so on the pulse that you can spot when you're needed to dive in and parachute and get everybody motivated while at the same time not smothering and handholding and being patronizing. So it's a real delicate blend of skills that um, you know I've I've found over the years I've I've been uh, uh, trying to hone in and not always succeeding of course, but um, but you know as time goes on, um, enjoying it more and more. And I always think about when I was a child and you, well everybody does this right. So you're a child and you have your parents and your parents say. Um, you don't want to do that because, you know, take my word for it. I, I did that when I was your age and it's going to end in tears and you do it anyway. Yes. Right. And, and I, mm-hmm. it's only now that I appreciate the previous CEOs that I've been led by when they were trying to steer me down a particular direction that I was just closed minded to. That was absolutely with far more knowledge than I had at that point. I don't even mean about what I do, but I just mean about the, the bigger picture, the vision. So the vision is one thing and getting the team to execute the vision in their own special way. Um, And and there's only one rule I have with my teams anyway for the last few years. And that is if you join the team the first day, you push to production. That's what you do. So it's part, you're part of the, you're you're part of the code base. You, you know, you kind of own that little piece and you just feel like as if you just contributed immediately. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you could get me on this subject for a long time, but I just think it's, it's it's more than anything um just use your two ears rather than your one mouth oh yeah yeah. that's so important and as you said if you are humble it actually gives voice to everybody around you uh if you have a reputation that you like to push your your way around you push your weight around then people are not going to speak up especially the the more shy people that you have on the team and they might have really deep insight that would spare you from a lot of business headaches <laughs> oh yes mm-hmm. and another person told me something very interesting i didn't quite register then um we were speaking about being humble but also not seeming weak so having authority and he said one thing he does is for example if they have a an important meeting he makes it a point to let everybody talk and even the shy people he asks them questions he makes it a point to be the last person to speak so he sums up the conversation that kind of gives you the the power to to lead the final direction and landing point of the of the conversation oh yeah i i can't agree with that anymore um i mean that's a really powerful message actually because when i was talking about not getting it right i would the immediate memory that came into my mind were those grooming sessions where as a CTO, I'm in there with my sleeves up and I'm saying, hey guys, why do you want to do it that way? Do it this way and kind of dictating the answers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, uh, I got very rapidly taught a lesson on that because, you know, you're hiring the developers. Yes, exactly. The developers don't treat it. They don't take that very well. But they, um, you know, you've got to, you're hiring smart people. Like, why would you be so patronizing or even arrogant to believe that you're going to be the best person in that scenario? So I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Stay quiet. Uh, often today, I don't even attend. Um, I don't even mean in my existing role, but other roles, uh, I, I don't attend grooming sessions or um, decision-making meetings, really, um, other than to get some feedback afterwards. And, and as long as I'm kind of happy with the direction it's taking and I, I 
because sometimes I may have more information than what the team have at the time. You know, you just want to kind of capture children from going yes. on the road. Um, and um, and that, that's, that's, that's all I do. Hey, look, it's easy. <laughs> it's far easier today than it was 20 years ago, I can assure you. But, um, but I just believe in the team around me. I really do. Usually leadership, if done correctly, it's actually really easy and kind of boring, actually, for, for the leader doing well, it, it. Yeah, no, I agree. I, you're absolutely right. And it takes you from, well, I wouldn't allow myself to get bored, and I'm sure you'd be the same. But I, I think that what you end up doing is if you've got a solid team around you, it allows you to now kind of think about the vision six months from now, the roadmap six oh, months yeah. from now, yes. you know. So... You know, if I've got a team of developers that are thinking about the next four weeks, a couple of sprints ahead, and I've got um, a leadership team in between that are probably thinking about two to three months maximum, uh, you know, realistically, it's probably only a month or two. Um, I want to be there thinking about six months plus um, and, and, and ensuring that we're, I'm shielding from my team all of the stuff that we're considering high risk that sound like amazing ideas in January, but before it reaches the engineering stage, or even the product stage in June, uh, I want to make sure that's been well validated um, long before yes. I start burdening them. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's not good to come like they get because you get the engineering team really excited about new ideas, and then they find out that we're not doing that, and it it creates like a sense of uh, uncertainty in the company, which it doesn't exist actually. If you come with each and every idea to them, and also you overload their thinking because they start thinking like, how do we prepare for this? What do we need to add? And they yeah. complicate everything you do to it. Yeah, and it gets it gets into in the way of the tickets that they're currently working on. Even though what you're talking about is like yes. ten sprints away, you know, they will start to think, well, why would I, why would I add this form of automation in this sprint if we're going to do that in six months? I might as well fix that now. So it, you know. Again, very valuable lessons that I've had to learn the hard way along the way. I once asked somebody, I told them, I told them, listen, nobody can predict the future. How can you plan for six for six months months in advance? Because if you could predict the future, you wouldn't need to do the work you're doing. And he stopped for a second and he looked at me and he said, uh, imagine being a leader is like being the captain of a huge oil tanker. Okay, you have to, to prepare for a stop. It takes you six months, the inertia of the boat. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what happens around the whole team. The bigger the company, the bigger the inertia. So I have to plan ahead. Whatever happens, would we like to stop at that destination in six months? If the answer is yes, go for it. Yeah, and we're, we're honing this in um, just because of the subject of, of the podcast into you know the tech leadership side of it. But then when you take yourself out of that and you add an additional bubble around all of that, which is operations and funding and, you know, third party sales techniques and hiring and all these other things. Right. And and that's why I respect the leaders in my past, because I just completely underestimated what was what was what their workload was. Uh, and I thought I was busy. Um, you know, th <laughs> those those people are really, really busy. So respect your CEOs, folks. <laughs> they know what they're doing. I yeah. promise. <laughs> for sure especially if they're building like a good team around them uh, yeah. because eventually even the ceo if he builds a good sisu team around him he gets more time to think about like what happens in six months what happens in one year so but but it's hard it's hard to build that team at that level uh, people with enough experience to bring them apart you really need to sell them on the vision 
Yeah. As I said, so you need to be close to it all the time. Yeah. You know, and, and that vision changes. It's not like as if it's the same vision all yes. the time. It, it pivots every day. The amount of times I have people saying to me that I, 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 we're in the middle of doing some regulatory, um, I, I, I won't turn this into the story because it would be the most boring story in the world, but we're in the middle of writing a regulatory application for some licensing, okay? And um, the thing with that is it might, might take several months to write. We're, we're, we're already maybe two or three months into it. Naturally, from a technical background, I'm always trying to improve the thing that we settled on two months ago when we started writing that documentation. So you just can't do that in the financial world. If you want licensing, you have to stick with what it is that you believe is going to be your, your true MVP um, and yes. make it a true MVP, right? And, and get to market with that. All of your other ideas, like ideas are easy. The execution is hard and your team can only... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Preach it. <laughs> Definitely. It is so hard to execute on ideas. Uh, and that's why not that many people um, make it. May many people try leadership just a little. It's like dipping there. You have to jump in and swim, basically, with it. And if you have good mentors, they would help you a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, I, I realized recently that I didn't deliberately try to find myself in a leadership role at all. It wasn't any aspiration um, at all. I just had a good mentor at the time. Um, unfortunately, he's since passed away, but at the time he, you know, I'm, I'm going back um, maybe 15 years now. Um, and he, because uh, my original background was actually going to be law before I went into in, in, into tech. Um, really? I, yeah, and I, and I know I doubt oh, I know, I know this. Yeah. I know the story. I was going to ask you about it because okay. it's such a cool, cool transition from law into tech. I loved it. I, I, I actually forgot. I'm now. Yeah, I forgot we discussed that. But yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, it was a bit longer. So I, I originally was um, a an intern, um, very, very as junior as it gets. Um, in fact, I'll even share with you what I earned. Right. So on this apprenticeship that I, I had, it was seventy five pounds per week. Um, 300 pounds a month and i was paid monthly and i lived and i had a uh, an apartment that would cost me 400 pounds a month to live in oh my okay. god so <laughs> the, man, the balance doesn't <laughs> no no and i and i work in finance and obviously i can't count very well so very rapidly i was um you know in deficit every month but i had a really cool landlord who you know went easy on me so that, that was like one relationship I thought when I think back sometimes and I go, oh God, if that landlord wasn't so, wasn't so, um, you know, uh, open-minded to my situation and he took a different route, maybe I wouldn't be here today. Maybe I'll be doing something completely different, but he was, he was really cool. But meanwhile, I'm in this, uh, at this, this apprenticeship where the intention is to be trained as a solicitor and go on to do law. Um, but the IT guy, oh gosh, and I just, I really hope that when I tell this story that the individual that I, I kind of allude to doesn't um, hear this because it's not very favorable. <laughs> but when, when the, the, uh, the, the existing IT guy, um, he'd be, he was an example of where we were discussing somebody who'd been in the job for a long time, um, quite a legacy role and really stubborn. And he priced up a project to upgrade from uh, just to solve the millennium bug issue. Right. I mean, we all remember that the planes were going to yes. fall out of the sky, the cash machines and the ATMs were going to throw out free money. It never happened, unfortunately. But the build up to it 
there was you know this crazy quote of millions of pounds to solve this problem for a really small law firm and they've kind of committed to the project and it was only because i just so happened by chance to entered into a meeting and served the coffees because that's what you do when you're an intern believe me you don't do a lot of a lot of law at all um and i was bringing the drinks in and they were having a meeting and i just heard them discussing the problem and i just knowing no better threw in a line like okay so why don't you just do x and y and z and uh it just so happened to be with the ceo of the company and the partner and then the it guy and the it guy kind of shut it immediately down he was like oh, that's ridiculous you don't know what you're talking about you're making the coffees i'll have two sugars please get back to your job so um <laughs> I was called in separately maybe a week later and it was about four months before. Um, so yeah, it was about the October time or the September time of 99. Um, and in the end I said, look, you know, I, I've got nothing to gain here, but if I take a machine, if I just stay behind and I take a machine and I get my kit and I upgrade the processor and, you know, and it works, then you've lost nothing. Right. So we did like two or three machines and then that ended up being my first ever contract. So I ended up being, you know, super young, not knowing how to negotiate a contract. And all of a sudden I'm going from making the coffees to, to selling. But you were uh, a lawyer. You should have known how to negotiate. The contract. <laughs> Wasn't a lawyer. Apprentice. 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 Ah, you were an apprentice. That's why. That's the one thing they don't teach you how to negotiate your pay. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, real one-on-one of law school is like, don't know how to negotiate a better package, for sure. Um, but yeah, so that was my introduction into, into tech, right? And it was completely accidental, and I had uh, no aspirations before that to do that. And then that led into various other roles where I started to get more hands-on from a coding perspective and automate some processes. And, you know, the rest is very much history, as they say. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I, look, I fondly look back at those times, and I ask myself, how would I survive for so long on like 100 pounds deficit a month with zero food? Like, you know, it's, I don't know how I did it. I really don't. But You were young. Yeah, I wasn't as hungry. I mean, look at me now. I mean, your listeners can't see me, but, uh, you know, I like to eat a lot of food. So it's, it wouldn't happen yeah. today. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I, I told my listeners that um, I studied law and graduated law. Yeah. And uh, I knew in my first year that I wasn't going to practice it. I said, no way, Jose, it's not a chance. It's just too much competition and you, they're fighting for crumbs. So I transitioned into, into tech. And I'll tell you, comparative to law, the pay is better. I completely work is harder it. in my experience, but uh, it's yeah. better, better paid. You know, I have the best of both worlds because my wife um, is is a lawyer and she runs a legal practice. So somehow or over, I was magnetized back to that somehow. You know, um, so, <laughs> so our arguments are awesome because I can be like super passionate about you know what I do from a technical perspective. No, you're crazy. You're not thinking and all this. I can I believe me. I can throw I can throw some hissy fits. But um, she's much more eloquent and like, well, you know, I don't think you're thinking about it this way. And she'll just throw some stabbing comments at me that um, only a legal mind can judge me on. Uh, and she always And you have a little of a legal mind, so it works out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I, I miss those days. That was, it was great fun back in the early 2000s. It was such a ride. It really was. Oh, starting out. Uh, and that moves us perfectly to the next topic, like for aspiring leaders, what are the top leadership tips you would have for them? Yeah, so I've given this some thought. Um, you know, number one for me is you've got to say no way more than you say yes. 
Like I, we hear this all the time, but it's just so important. I can't stress like how much time, money, effort, and success would be totally pivoted if you could just literally just say, I either I don't know or you know, just no. And it, more importantly, especially if you're at the executive level at some point, is say no to your CEO a lot. Like just do not feel like just because the CEO has walked into the room and asked you something that you've got to stop what you're doing and move on to it or start to seriously research it. Because uh, I can tell you from firsthand experience that the vast majority of the throwaway comments that I make to the team, um, you know, um, I, I'd probably forgotten about an hour later, right? So yes. it's, it's just not, um, you know, so just say no as much as possible. Start every project with an exit strategy. I mean, personally, I kind of said this at the top of the interview. I mean, you've got to identify your replacement as part of your growth strategy um, as early as possible. And you've got to, um, you know, as, as one of your first hires, hopefully, you've got to be willing to hand over the keys at some point to that individual. Um, and, and the moment you recognize that you're no longer adding any more value and you're just collecting salary, I, I can assure you some of the best exit relation uh, conversations I've had with CEOs have been the ones where they were completely like flabbergasted or side hooted with the idea of me leaving the project at that time to the point where they would try and do anything to try and keep you. But you, you're, you're, you're explaining to them that no, 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 you can understand this person here has been there from day one. They know everything. You know, I'm really interested in this sort of thing now and you guys are in safe hands and move on. And believe me, you'll you'll build friendships for life with your colleagues if you can yes. do that. It's a very hard, it's a very hard decision to make. Just don't collect the checks. Um, and you've got to fail like super quickly. And I mean at a project basis. In the first instance, if you can filter from your teams, um, the, you know, the stuff that we just said before, the high risk stuff, that's, that's like, you know, uh, 101. But even when you're on a project and you've committed and you feel the pressure is on, you you really want to get it over the line and you don't like failure, failure is good. I can tell you if this is project 14, probably three have succeeded. And that depends on your definition of success. So, you know, oh. there's a very high failure rate in this industry. And I seem to to look out for failure far more so than I do success, especially if the success comes from the first thing that you're on and the only thing that you've been on. That's far less valuable for me than project number seven. And you know, you've, you've, um, you've learned, you've built a few scars along the way. So fail super quickly. And I know you asked for three things, but look, the bonus for me, just because of the climate, um, just don't let this pandemic scare you. Whatever you're doing right now, it might seem, like super tough out there right now, the lack of jobs and far fewer opportunities and, and the values are dri uh, dipping down from an economy uh, perspective. But, um, you know, take advantage of the fact that you can now work from home as much as possible and just use these conditions to, to execute the thing that you've been trying to do. If you've ever considered kind of doing something you, uh, on your own and you're, you know, you're, you have the, the risk appetite for it, some of the biggest successes have, have happened during a, a Great Depression. And that's not quite where we are right now, but um, a global pandemic will really make you ask some life questions. So you've got to have... Oh, yes. You know, oh, true. You've got to have health in mind, but you've also got to have health in a professional capacity as well. So don't let the pandemic put you off wherever it is that you want to do. 
that is so true and as you said during a crisis that's when you get usually most of the most successful companies were built in crises they were not uh, built during uh, boom years um, most of the companies built during the boom years they fail because they don't have the leadership uh, the mindset to survive with little resources and when the resources dwindle a little the company falls <laughs> yeah agreed. yeah yeah absolutely and i've been on projects where we've had really good funding from the off and therefore it's felt like you, you you know you've got tens of millions in the bank and how could you possibly spend this in the next two years and then five months later you need a new raise um, it, was it happens yeah it happens so oh yes i've heard about i've heard stories stories of companies that raise a and lot it's of spent, money and it all, was gone in a couple of months yes and it's always spent legitimately like there's nothing on toward yes it's just no the excitement of everything and and you know you want to get it done but um you know on, on what i'm working on at the moment we've been really keen to not make that mistake and it's a very lean team a very experienced but very lean team and we're very hands-on as well so until certain milestones are hit i don't draw down on the funding that we've already been awarded so we're in a very lucky position um, to do that and for me just tasting my own medicine the pandemic has at least allowed me to kind of focus on that project more so than if it, if we weren't in a pandemic you know working from home etc i probably wouldn't have the time so it's a, a new beginning for sure yeah and the thing about budgets that a lot of people doesn't understand it it goes back to accounting and zero zero equations like you have to be spot on you cannot go over budget and you cannot be under budget and i yeah. i know a funny story about a marketing executive he got i think 140,000 euros budget for an eight months plan he was supposed to implement it he got this idea that he was going to save the company money and he bragged at the end, like, listen, I, I did everything with 20 grand. Here's 120 back. And the, the executives lost it. If I give you 140,000 for, for as a budget, if you want to impress me, stretch it out as much as possible, but spend it all. Yeah, agreed. It's, it's, um, it's a really easy metric, right? And most people don't, realize this and, and your story is perfect for it because it, when it comes to raising on the one hand you don't want to raise too much because then you're sacrificing equity early and therefore you're you know you're effectively giving away too much of the pie too cheaply and then later in life when you're uh, lucky enough to draw down on on your investors if you're not spending their money they don't see that as a return full stop that's just not the mindset yeah. to have yeah. you've got to spend every penny as fast as possible if you want to be in the vc kind of you know world that kind of vanity metric of of whatever it is but you know in in my experience over the years there's been different components associated to the levels of raise that you'll take some investors are interested in signups you know like number of active accounts um other investors are literally interested in the the annual recurring revenue or everybody has a different kind of thing for it but what i promise investors and i, I this is from a an ex-colleague of mine that uh, um, really gave me a harsh reality check on on the funding um, cycle was that mm -hmm. you, you have to provide to your investor uh, a very lemonade stand uh, vision of exactly when they're going to exit, what the numbers are going to look like when you get there, 
and precisely what it is that you're going to do with that money. And if, yeah. and if things pivot, that's fine. But it doesn't mean that you go back and say, hey, I changed my mind and there's 500,000 back. You know, it's, it's a case of use the 500, yes. but just, you know, people are investing in you as well to make the right decisions with it. So, um, yeah, spend money like as if it doesn't exist when you're in business if you can do. <laughs> Interesting advice. I like it. I love <laughs> it. I love it. Uh, and since you have like a law background, I know law comes with a lot of reading. Uh, so what is the book that had the most profound impact on you? It can be absolutely any field. It doesn't have to be from law. Oh, right. Any field. Um, well, listen, a little secret is I don't read books. I listen to them. Um, I love okay. Audible. It's the only way that I can I can find the time to... Uh, to read anything at all. And the vast majority of the books that I do read are autobiographical, uh, oh, sorry, autobiographies, um, autobiographical, what's that word? Autobi. <laughs> it's, it's ironic. I say it's exactly. Yeah, but thank you. If I read more, I might have known that. Um, so <laughs> no, all, all you needed was to own a Range Rover and you would have known that one. <laughs> the, the autobiography, that's true. Um, yeah. Yeah, sorry uh, to ruin that. But yeah, the, the uh, Audible for me is, is the future. So I, I just love other people's success stories. Um, I'm genuinely addicted to the journeys that people take from beginning to end. So, so what's the, the one that stuck most or hit closest to, the, to your soul? To, to your soul. Um, it would... You may not know who this person is, but it's a, it's a UK uh, now radio host um, by the name of Chris Evans. Um, most people really underestimate this person. And anybody hearing that recommendation will say, who's this guy, right? But then when you look into his journey, it's the craziest, um, you know, full of trials, well, tribulations, and, and, and positives and negatives along the way. And he's not you know, he's, he's, he's not a crystal. He's not completely clean himself. He's made some bad decisions along the way. Um, and he's a terrible businessman by his own admission. That, that, that Those are his words. But he's got two or three books or so um, that really tell a story of his life. And it's completely opposite to mine. But he's, like he, 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 uh, he's done business with Richard Branson and successfully kind of negotiated a deal against, you know, probably one of the best negotiators in the world. He owns the world's most expensive Ferrari and how we got it was a story. Um, so check out Chris Evans, I suppose, uh, and his uh, autobiography. Um, but beyond awesome. that... I'm going to check it out for sure. I'm actually going to check it out. Um, also, since you mentioned Bronson, and I kind of like you, I'll give you the best part that I found from, uh, from his life and biography. Um, he basically summed it up I forgot on what page, that all his success came about from the fact that his mother, who was a stewardess, worked in airline, mm. uh, was worried that uh, she might uh, die, have an accident, because flying was very dangerous back then, especially across the ocean. Mm. And she was worried that her uh, child would be left alone and uh, not be well-equipped to deal with life. So one day when he was very young, like five or six, she took him to the outskirts of London, asked him, do you think you can manage to get back home from here? He, he nodded yes, left him there and drove away. 
<laughs> and he got back home on his own and he said nothing seemed scary after that. Yeah, it's great. Absolutely I, nothing. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was Losing My Virginity, I believe was the name of that book. And uh, he was, uh, yeah, absolutely awesome story. And very true as well. And, and, uh, and I wish... Well, hang on. Let me phrase this correctly. I was about to say, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, um, I wish more parents would do that, but I don't mean it that way. Um, I just wish that everybody could have a challenge like that at some point in their lives, you know, because you just don't Give know. Give confidence. Yeah, exactly. And you don't know what you're made of until you put in the situation. And I, I have witnessed friends that I thought would be the last people to step up when it was needed that have been absolutely on their feet when it came to some kind of emergency and they've just you know blown me away um whether it be an accident or whatever it might be but the other great thing i, I love about the branson story actually just quickly on that is that he um how he started virgin atlantic was just incredible he was actually trying to impress a girlfriend of his if i remember the story correctly and he was on his way to take a take a tour of necker island but he knew he couldn't afford to buy it so he was just kind of showing off um, and then along the way, his flight was cancelled um, and he just decided, hey, let's just round up some people and charter a flight and get out there one way for $200 and call it Virgin Atlantic. And, and, and there you go. I mean, I love the drive of somebody who we were talking before about ideas are 10 to a penny. But if you if you don't actually stand up and execute them, then you can't sit around when you say, oh, I invented the transparent toaster. Because it's always in your mind, right? You don't really ever <laughs> yeah. get out to market, and you see other people doing it. You're like, "Oh, that was my idea," but just don't. I, I don't ever want to be that guy. There's a word for that, but I won't mention it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Eric, if uh, people want to find out more about you, where should they go? I'm not really a social media guy. Um, I do have a Twitter. Um, if you want to join one of my like. 14 followers, please go ahead. I, I tend to talk a lot about golf and and um, just the odd thing that frustrates me. But I think LinkedIn would probably be the best way. Um, I'm, I'm pretty active on that and I contribute quite a bit to it. And that's where the vast majority of my network is. So if you feel I can be of any, any use to you in any way or recommend you to some folks in my network, then I do that every day. I spend 30 minutes of my day every day just literally reading inbox messages that, from people who I don't know who they are. Uh, forwarding their details to somebody else who I do know, where I know for a fact that they can help them out. So I enjoyed that. Yeah, well, awesome. That's really generous of you. That's how we met, and I think it was a fruitful connection. And uh, for people listening, um, if you want to reach out uh, to Dirk, I would recommend doing so. With the mention that you should uh, use the mention and say, hey, I listened to your episode, so you don't come off as a weirdo or a stranger. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you'd be surprised some of the messages I get. But yeah, that would be a a far better subject line than some of the ones I do get, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been a pleasure, Dirk, having you on the show. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, no, believe in the pleasure was mine. I've been looking forward to it and uh, hope there's some value there. Oh, yes. Oh, lots of I time. guarantee. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. That was today's episode. Tune in daily. Rate, like, subscribe and share, please. Oh, you can find further info and materials in the show notes on techyleadership.com, including links to the guest book recommendations.